Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, I'm joined again with Dr. Joyce Tildesley on May 17th, 2021. An episode was published where Dr. Tildesley joined the show, and we had a conversation about Queen Nefertiti, a former queen of Egypt. And uh, so Dr. Tildesley is back on the show today. Queen Nefertiti was married to a pharaoh named Akhenaten. So in today's conversation, we are going to have a conversation about Akhenaten, a former Egyptian pharaoh. Dr. Tildesley is a British archaeologist and Egyptologist. She is professor of Egyptology in the Department of Classics, Ancient History, Archaeology, and Egyptology within the School of Arts, Languages, and Cultures at the University of Manchester, based in the UK. She has written many publications over her career, including authoring a couple books as examples. She's author of the book Nefertiti, Egypt's Sun Queen, which was published by Viking Adult. And she is author of the book Nefertiti's Face, The Creation of an Icon, which was published in the UK by Profile Books and in the US by Harvard University Press. And she joins the show today from the UK. Welcome back on the show, Joyce. Thank you for inviting me, Andrew. It's great to be here. So I had uh, told you this. So your husband, your husband was on the show um, about, I don't know now, I don't have the date in fr- front of me, but it's, it's findable um, o- online. Uh, and we chatted about um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, a fortress, a previous fortress that, that he's excavating called the uh, uh, Zawiyet Um El, El, El Rakim. And I told you that um, in that conversation, I actually plugged, um, I plugged our Queen Nefertiti of Egypt um, uh, episode, but I had to pull it. Unfortunately, I had to pull the the plug because I needed to get that episode under under 60, 60 minutes. So so because I had to do that, um, I'm 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 giving uh, that episode with your husband, uh, Doctor Stephen Snape, uh, a friendly plug right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure I'd be grateful. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. All right. So let's start with a, um, as usual, let's start with a broad overview type question and then to create sufficient context and background, then we can work our way into the details. Uh, who was Akhenaten? He's a pharaoh who came to the throne of Egypt in what we call the 18th dynasty. It's a part of the new kingdom. So he comes to the throne in about 1352 BCE. I mean, Egyptian dates are are fairly approximate, but it's round about then. And he's very different to all Egyptian pharaohs. Generally speaking, pharaohs look the same and do the same basic um, deeds because the pharaoh of Egypt has a duty to keep things similar, to keep the gods happy, to make sure that the land flourishes. And they do this by being very similar to the gods who've gone before. And we can talk about this in more detail later because I'm just kind of introducing him now. But Akhenaten did something very different. He looked different. He built a new city. Well, when I say he looked different, his art looked different. He built a new city and he worshipped, rather than worshipping a whole lot of gods like pharaohs traditionally did, he dedicated himself to one god, which was a sun god known as the Aten. So after thousands of years of pharaohs all being fairly similar in their deeds and their beliefs, suddenly we get one person who is very different. 
and it was an experiment and it didn't really last and during the reign of Tutankhamun who followed him onto the throne everything went back to how it had been so that that case basically is him there's a, there's a lot to study there i think he's a very interesting individual how do you, in present times how do scholars uh know about Akhenaten, who, uh, the, who he was and the the life he he lived. What what evidence in in modern modern day are scholars leaning on to understand this um, individual? Well, he he left art and building works in in various parts of Egypt, but the main place that he lived was the new city that he built, which was we call today we call it Amarna. He called it Akhetaten, but I'll call it Amarna because that's really what, what it's known as today. And we call his reign the period when his beliefs were the, the beliefs that were adapted throughout Egypt, the Amarna period. And Amarna has survived really well. Normally speaking, Egyptian domestic sites don't survive. Most of the buildings are made of mud brick and they've been flattened and they've, they've been um, diluted by Nile water or they've been collected and spread as fertilizers on the fields. And the stone blocks that would have built the temples have been reused by subsequent generations and people have built on top of where the old cities were and so on. So generally speaking, we don't have a lot of domestic architecture from dynastic Egypt. But Amarna was built in a place where no one had built before and nobody built on top of it either. So we have this relatively well-preserved city, which was built by Akhenaten. So it shows us what he intended for his um, for his people and for his new religion and how he wanted to express himself. And it's been excavated for 100 years and is still being excavated now and it's turning up some really fantastic, some really fascinating finds. So a lot of the information comes from there. And we're particularly lucky in that around his city of Amarna, he carved what we call boundary stele, which, which showed the limits of his city. It's not just a city, there's farmland around it as well. And he actually tells us what he intended for his city. And he tells us something of his religious beliefs. So we have all this information and we can put together the archaeology, the textual evidence, the evidence from his sculptures and his, his um, images. And we can have a fairly good go at reconstructing what his reign was like. Was his body or mummy ever found? Oh, that's, that's a really, really tricky question. Um we know that he died at Amarna and he always intended to be buried in the royal tomb because he tells us this. It's one of the things he says on the boundary stealer that he will be buried in the royal tomb at Amarna. So we assume he was. But then his, his body is lost and when the royal tomb was rediscovered, it had been robbed. So it wasn't found. But we have a body that is found in the Valley of the Kings, which is near Thebes. So it, it's quite some distance from Amarna. And some people believe that this body is Akhenaten. The belief being that Tutankhamun, when he moved from Amarna and restored Egypt to how it had been, took Akhenaten's body with him and reburied him in the, near the, well, in the Valley of the Kings. The problem with this body is, though, um, is that people aren't agreed with it. Now, some people look at the anatomy and interpret it as a person who's about 20 years old, the anatomy and the teeth and think it's too young to be Akhenaten because we know that Akhenaten ruled for 17 years and had at least six children. Other people have examined the DNA and have concluded from this that this is Tutankhamun's father and is 
probably Akhenaten. So it's really difficult. Some people will tell you, yes, we have the body, and it's a body that was found in a tomb called KV Kings Valley 55 in the Valley of the Kings. And other people will tell you, no, we don't have the body and we're still looking. It's, well, this is one of the brilliant things about Egyptology. There's so many twists and turns and mysteries. It means that everybody who reads about it can examine the evidence for themselves and draw their own conclusions. I love it because I, well, I like detective stories, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a uh, big puzzle. Um, it is. Yeah, and I, I, I certainly want to cover succession uh, at some point in the episode uh, for chronology, maybe uh, more closer to the, to the uh, end of the episode. But you have mentioned... Um, Tutankhamen's name a, a few times, so I, I do. I wanna, I wanna touch. I wanna touch on that for a moment. So, what's what's known about the relationship then between Akhenaten and Tutankhamen, and kind of where I'm going with that question is trying to understand: is there a familial uh, relationship there? Um, again, we're not specifically told this. The, the 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 really brilliant thing about Tutankhamen is that we have his body and we have his tomb. So we know who he is and where he is, which is quite rare for this time. We don't just have his name. We actually have physical evidence for him. And we can see from the body in his tomb that he died at about 18 or 20 years of age. We also know from the evidence of the dates that are preserved in his tomb, he has wine jars in his tomb, which are stamped with dates. And we can work out from these that he ruled Egypt for about 10 years. So we can obviously work out from that that he became king at about eight years of age, maybe eight to ten years old. And the thing about if 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 a child takes the throne at eight years old, he's not taken it by invasion or conquest or even probably by marrying into the royal family. He's a child born into the royal family. So we can, even though Tutankhamun doesn't in his tomb give us any indication of who his parents were, we can deduce from that that he is the son of a previous king. And we tend to assume that that previous king is Akhenaten. It's not 100% cut and dried. There's a possibility that there is a king, a very short-lived king, between Akhenaten and Tutankhamun. And there's a very remote possibility that that king could be Tutankhamun's father. But I would say we're definitely certain that he is either Akhenaten's son or grandson. I, I would say that anyway. Okay. And does the forensic technology exist um where uh professionals could take two bodies um i guess you know uh, like skeleton remains and does does forensic technology exist and you you said that um there there's it's unsure if akhenaten's body was ever found but let's let's assume there's two two skeletons um does forensic uh, technology exist where um, a, a certain process could be applied to those bodies to, de- to determine the um, if the DNA is sufficiently synergistic to be um, uh, familial? Um, well, this is a really big question. Some people will say yes and some people will <laughs> say no. The problem is you have a lot of contamination in these bodies. Um, it's a long period of time. There's also the possibility of, of heat damage. And there's also, of course, the underlying factor that most people in the Valley of the Kings are likely to be related to each other. So some people think, yes, you can do this. And, and they have taken samples and said that, yes, you can relate this mummy to this mummy. And some people don't believe that this is as advanced as, as it maybe appears to be and feel that we're wrong to rely just on the DNA, we should also be looking at other aspects such as the anatomy and the dental records as well. I mean, I'm not a scientist, 
And like a lot of people, I have to believe or rely on what I read. If you read sort of the more popular press, it, it seems as if it's absolutely cut and dried that we've actually identified all these um, kings and we can link them all together. But the real situation, it's not quite as clear as that would maybe suggest. It's still in the experimental stage. I mean, hopefully we're going the right way and hopefully one day it will be absolutely cut and dried beyond all reasonable doubt that these, these links are made. But at the moment, we're still in the beginning stages and we have to be, I think, slightly cautious that even though DNA is scientific and scientific you know, evidence should be the evidence that we go down, we shouldn't automatically discount evidence such as anatomy. So if a body is telling us that from its bones and its teeth it's 20 years old, we, we should question whether we can interpret it as being a 35, 40-year-old man. It's that sort of, we just have to be a bit cautious, I think. We're on the cusp of this, but we haven't quite got there in my view but as i say i'm not a scientist forensic uh forensic type type shows in different genres on tv and stuff uh, joyce always make it look so easy yes exactly <laughs> it's not that easy you have to be really cautious and you can't throw all the evidence out you know you can't just look at the dna but we're so so accustomed these days to DNA testing with living people or, or people who aren't, you know, too far remote in time being accurate, that we mustn't assume that it's as accurate when we go back into the past because there are these these questions and, and that might happen. Yeah. Mummification is um involves chemicals. What effect is that having on things as well? What exactly are we testing? These bodies have been they died, they were mummified that some of them have been unwrapped and rewrapped in the past you know we have to be very cautious is all i'm saying and i know it sounds it makes me sound really old-fashioned as i'm not accepting the modern evidence it's not that at all i just feel we shouldn't rush to embrace it and forget everything else we know from the history and from the anatomy and so on i guess i guess i'm just really cautious yeah you're being you're being prudent i under i understand um, what's known about, and I'm sure there's a lot not, not known, but, but that's, but that, but let's still dive, dive into these topics. Um, uh, what's known about how he became the Pharaoh? Well, he was born into the Royal family. His mother was a very powerful woman called Queen T and his father was a Pharaoh called Amenhotep III. And Amenhotep III was very rich. Um, he inherited the throne quite young and he was a long lived king. And he was so powerful that he didn't need to do anything like fighting to maintain his empire because he was just like the, the top person in the Mediterranean world at that time. So Akhenaten was brought up in, in um, well, in luxury. He wasn't the eldest son, though. He had an older brother called Tuthmosis, and Tuthmosis would have been the crown prince and was being trained to be the pharaoh, but he died. So Akhenaten then stepped forward and took the throne when his own father died. So his, his pedigree, though, is for him, we can we can trace him back and we can link him back to future pharaohs. So we have no trouble with his parentage. Is there any sense of uh, how how old he, he might have been when he became um, a pharaoh of Egypt? No, you see, this, this is one of the problems sort of working backwards from the mummies. Different people have put different suggestions forward. All I can say is that um, so some people, for example, would suggest that he had actually a long co-regency with his father, that they shared the throne for some time. Other people don't believe that happened at all. All we can say is that he has a child, either at least one that we can see in his art, by the time he becomes king. So 
he's at least old enough to have fathered a child. He might have other children that we can't see, of course. Um, one thing that, that's slightly distorting our view of this time, and one reason that I'm slightly hesitant about Tutankhamun, is that at this time, royal daughters appear in art, but royal sons don't. So we can see his daughters appearing. We know he has a daughter during the first year of his reign, but we don't know about sons. He could, as far as we know, have older sons as well. So from that, I would say the fact that he has a daughter in the first year of his reign and he rules for at least 17 years, I would have put him at least, well, I would say 40s, but, you know, I'm guessing when he died, not when he came to the throne. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. So what's... Um... What's known about, um, certainly, and I said this in the introduction, he was married to Nefertiti. What's, what's known about the number of marriages he may have had? Well, all of Egypt's kings were polygamous at this time. So we know that he had more than one wife. And we tend to forget this because Nefertiti is such a dominant character that we, we see the two of them together in official images. But how it works is that you have one queen who is your consort. She's the official queen that will appear in art, who will be mentioned in diplomatic correspondence. She is the one who will participate in rituals. If we ever see a scene of the royal family, it's that queen, the queen consort, and her daughters who are alongside the king. But there are others, and they're in the royal harem. We know that he had um, he inherited women from his father. We know that he had at least one foreign bride who was sent to Egypt to marry into the royal family. And we know that he had one particular favourite um, harem queen or secondary queen called Kia, because we see her appearing on monuments as well. And we know that she bore him at least one daughter because we have an image of her with a daughter. We don't know, of course, whether she bore him a son. Um, that, we wouldn't know that because they're not because of this problem of sons not appearing in official art at this time. So it's not just Nefertiti. There's a lot of women around him, um, but Nefertiti is the dominant one. And he also has his mother, Queen T, is also another powerful influence. And she she outlives her husband, Amenhotep III, and she also appears at Amarna and appears in art there as well. So he's really living a life. If we look at the art, he's living a life surrounded by women, his daughters, his wife, and his mother. Do you think that... Uh... Do you or uh, any any scholars heavily speculate that um, it was it was there could have been more sons in the in the in the picture, but it was purposeful in any way to only represent the uh, the daughters uh, in the artwork? Yeah, I, I think I think what's going on, and again, I'm, it's never explained to us, so I'm totally guessing here, is that a, a royal daughter is really born into the royal family, and that is her status. She's a king's daughter and her duty is to protect her father. She might eventually go on to marry her brother and become the next queen of Egypt, but she's she's secure with it. She's not a threat to him. She's a support to him. Whereas if he has a son, that son is potentially a future king of Egypt and will be treated very differently. He's not a part of Akhenaten, in, in this case, his nuclear family. He's potentially a king who will have his own family around him, if that makes sense. So it's only when it's made clear who the next in line for the succession is that these, these princes start to emerge. It's almost like they're invisible. But I'm sure, I mean, just statistically, if he's got six daughters with Nefertiti and a daughter with Kia and other women in the harem, one has to assume that he has sons as well, I think. I, it would be odd if he didn't. And it's not just, it's not just him. If you just go back to his own father, Amenhotep III, 
We only learn about Prince Tuthmosis when he's actually the crown prince, and we know nothing at all about Akhenaten until he comes to the throne. So it, it, it's an ongoing situation that these royal boys just don't appear. They're trained. It looks like they're being trained up to be king of Egypt, but kept out of the limelight until someone decides what the succession is, whereas the daughters are almost born into their role. And by featuring his daughters on his art, Akhenaten is not being in any way threatened by their presence. They're supporting him. They're showing how fertile he is. And women have a sort of protective power. Wives and, and mothers have this power. I think daughters do too. So they're supporting him in his rule in the way that perhaps a son wouldn't do. I want to I obviously get into some of the particulars about his, 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 uh, his reign, but I think um, let's, cover, let's cover his religious orientation first. And I think it'll be easy, easy to then kind of move back and forth in and out of his, his reign from that, um, from that vantage point. So um, what's known about his religious orientation? Well, he starts off having the same orientation as everybody else in that he's worshipping all the gods in Egypt. It's quite important this because the king's duty is to maintain something that's called mart. And mart is it's a really difficult word. We don't have an English equivalent. The opposite of mart is ispet, which is chaos. So if you like, he's trying to maintain anti-chaos in Egypt. It's a kind of combination of the status quo and justice and righteousness. And we know that the gods of Egypt crave Mart. They want to be offered Mart. The king will keep everything constant, keep everything as it should be, make sure nothing goes wrong in Egypt, and will offer this to the gods. And the gods, in turn, will protect Egypt. And because of this, his duty to keep everything ticking over as it should be, the king is the head of all the religious cults, he's the head of the civil service, and he's the head of the army. Of course, he doesn't actually do all this work. He has people who do it for him, priests and generals and, and civil servants and so on. But this is the theory. So up to the point of Akhenaten, all the kings of Egypt are technically heads of all the religious cults because they're the only people who can really communicate with the gods. Round about year two, Akhenaten makes this decision that he's going to dedicate himself to one god, the Aten or the, the sun disk. And this, of course, is a really dangerous thing to do because by doing this, he's downgrading all the other gods and nobody knows what will happen. If you believe that the gods are happy because the king is making offerings to them and is worshipping them and keeping them happy, if that king then suddenly decides basically to ignore the other gods, goodness knows what would happen to Egypt. You know, it could be a really potentially dangerous situation. Um, so it must have been something that, that dismayed the people, to say the least. A lot of people think that his new religion is monotheism, that he's worshipping one god. He's not. He's allowing for other gods, but he's pretty much dedicating himself to one god. So we probably call it henotheism if we were looking to name it. He will accept some gods, some gods he seems to hate, and he seems to really have a vendetta against. Others, mainly sun gods, he's, he's okay with. So we can see his god in two-dimensional art, in paintings and and uh, um, line um, wall, wall, wall carvings. And it's represented by just a disc, a circle, a sun disc in the sky. And there are a lot long, thin rays come off the sun disc. And these rays have little hands and they hold out the anchor of life and they shine over the royal family. So clearly the art and the disc is giving life to the royal family. It looks like he's worshipping not the sun itself, but the light of the sun. It's, I guess, subtly different. The power that comes from the light of the sun. And this is a massive change. Um, 
he closes the traditional temples and he decides that because this new god of his needs to be worshipped somewhere where other gods haven't contaminated the city, he builds a new city on land that's not been previously built on and he builds a big sun temple there. Um, you would think, I, th I think you would think this in Egypt where, you know, obviously the sun shines daily and um, anybody could go out in the fields and look at the sun and worship it. But that's not the case with Artanism. It's not a democratic religion. I think the first Egyptologists who came across it saw what they thought was monotheism, thought it was almost something, you know, that they could link almost to say the biblical Moses and thought it was a very democratic religion that the sun would shine down on everyone and it was easy for everyone to worship the Artan. But this is not in at all the case. He puts limitations in place. So ordinary people cannot access the Artan directly. They can't go to the temples and worship. What they have to do is they have to worship the new god, the Artan, via the royal family. So we find at Amarna images of the king and the royal family worshipping the Artan, the god. And the elite people, the courtiers who surround them, can only access this god by worshipping in front of images of Nefertiti, Akhenaten, and maybe their children. So it's a, it's a huge change for the people who are living around him and living with him. What do you think, um, if you have to sp speculate, um, or is there any, 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 anything in the records that might indicate what interested him in... Um, in making this 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 change of of worship or how he got introduced to to uh the deity um Arden and is there and how how much history what's known about how much history this uh Arden has in 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 Egypt prior to Akhenaten's life okay. well the artisan isn't a new god but it's very much a minor god but if we look to his father's reign and his grandfather, Tuthmosis's reign, we can see that these later 18th dynasty pharaohs are interested in sun cults. They do have a particular leaning towards the sun gods. This isn't unusual. Um, because pharaoh is, is technically head of all the cults, it doesn't mean they have to like them all equally. You know, you'll find that some pharaohs have a particular devotion towards one god, some will have a particular devotion towards other gods. That's fine, as long as you don't ignore the other gods. The difference here is that he does actually ignore the other gods and even turns against some of the gods. But I think his interest in solar religion is coming from his family, that there's been this increasing interest in solar religion. It seems to be bound up with also having an interest in the development of the divinity of the living king as well. Because I've said that Akhenaten is encouraging people to worship the Aten via his own image, his statues or his art on the walls and, and stone slabs and so on. His father was also interested in his own divinity and he was in fact worshipped as a living god outside Egypt, which is, is rare. Normally the, the pharaoh is considered to be kind of partially divine. He could talk to the gods, but he will only become fully divine when he dies. Whereas Amenhotep III, Akhenaten's father, is definitely experimenting with the idea that he might actually be be divine. I think it's no coincidence that he's a long-lived pharaoh. He might have actually thought he couldn't even die. We don't know. So he's experimented with this, and I think Akhenaten really picks, up, picks it up and runs with it. Some people have suggested that maybe the Aten is a form of worshipping his own father, 
but the Artan stands for his father and that he and Nefertiti are the children of his father, the children of the Artan. We don't really know about that. But certainly he does use it to emphasise the role of the royal family, to separate them even further from the ordinary people. It's, it's, it's difficult for the ordinary people because it, it sounds simple to remove the other gods. But for example, if you consider the god Osiris, Osiris is the god of the afterlife. Um, he was a king of Egypt, he died, and he went off to rule the afterlife. And traditionally, all kings of Egypt become one with Osiris when they die. But it's Osiris who offers afterlife to the Egyptians. Um, it's his promise of going to work with him in the field of reeds forevermore that is, is behind, really, the, the, the idea of preserving the body and having a tomb and so on. Certainly, in Akhenaten's religion, Osiris has gone and his afterlife has gone. So suddenly, while the king and his family still seem to have an afterlife away from the tomb, the ordinary Egyptians don't have that anymore. They're now told that they will be basically trapped inside their tombs to the end of time. And if we look at their tomb walls, the tombs that Akhenaten that actually created for them, we don't see any images of the traditional gods or the traditional scenes on the walls. It's covered in scenes of the royal family. I think it's very, very clear that Akhenaten is using this religion to separate himself from everybody else even more than the pharaoh has already been separated. And the pharaoh has always been separated from the, from the ordinary people. He's always, you know, people bow before him, they kiss the ground before him. I don't think they look him in the face. But now they're also effectively worshipping him as well. So if uh, an Egyptian deity like Osiris is no longer... Um... I'm I'm I'm, presu- I'm presuming it's, it was a uh, that deity was a state state um, uh, god at some at some point. But if uh, if the if Osiris is no longer you know using that term like a state a state god, um, then where does the uh, henotheism come into play? What's that juxtaposition? Because you mentioned it's not it's not a, a case of mono monotheism. So what's the and I think and it's very very clear um what that relationship uh he had with with uh with 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 Arden based on your response can you speak about then then okay so that's going on uh he has this very close relationship with the deity Arden it sounds like Arden's become the state uh more of an official um uh, deity of Egypt in that in in this period of time that we're speaking about um then so from a juxtaposition perspective uh how were the other uh, previous uh, popular deities treated? It's really difficult for us to know because we have very little idea of what is happening outside Amarna City at this time. But what seems to be happening is many of the traditional temples were closed or converted to art and temples, and the priesthoods seem to have converted as well. But this is the official um, viewpoint so for Atamana, you don't get temples to anybody else apart from the Artan. But some gods are more acceptable. For example, um, any, any god connected with the sun is fine. Mart. The concept of Mart can be personified by a goddess Mart. She's acceptable too. So there are other gods that are okay and will be accepted by him. What the people outside Amarna are actually worshipping and believing is very difficult for us to see. And and one suspects that really they haven't changed their beliefs that much um, because Akhenaten can't be everywhere all the time. It's particularly at Amarna and particularly the people who surround the throne, the courtiers, who have to change because they have to seem to follow what the king is doing. 
but there's a workman's village built outside of Manor City, and the workman's village is where the workers lived who built the royal tombs. And if we look inside their houses, which are much less splendid than the houses in Amarna City, we can see that they are still worshipping or believing in traditional gods. Workmen wouldn't necessarily worship the state gods. They were more likely to believe in demigods, people, gods that would help with childbirth, gods who would protect them against accidents and so on. And we can see if we look in the workmen's houses, this sort of belief system is still carrying on. But certainly for the elite, those who Akhenaten worked with, those who were very conspicuous in his life, they had to, at least superficially, completely change their views. It must have been really difficult for them because they'd moved to Amarna, they'd had to leave their traditional family tombs, for example, and they would have known that their parents and grandparents would be relying on them to make offerings at these tombs, which they now can't do because they can't get to them. Um, and to have their own afterlife stripped away as well was, was not a good thing for them. I think it explains why this religion didn't last beyond Akhenaten's reign, because it was so firmly based on Akhenaten himself that when he wasn't there, there was no, there was no willingness really to continue it. I think it didn't offer enough to the people. So what... Um... So we've covered uh, his religious orientation. Uh, we covered um, the, the 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 move to. It sounds like the capital in his life moved to uh, yeah. Armana. And he, and yeah, he, I mean they don't really have a capital as we would have a capital like in England. We have London, and the Queen lives there. She's got other palaces, but she lives there, and the Parliament is there, and so on. They have prominent um, cities, and and generally speaking, kings move up and down the Nile showing themselves to the people and, and visiting and making everyone aware that they're there. But again, Akhenaten is interesting because once he builds Amarna, he doesn't leave it. So if he wants to see people, he will summon them, summon them to come to Amarna. And we get the sense that maybe the rest of the country is, is slightly slipping out of his control and certainly his empire, which he inherited, is slightly slipping out of his control because of his reluctance to do anything that stay at Amarna and focus on, on his new religion. So what what else is known then about his his reign? Is there any anything um, that you want to highlight that that's known uh, maybe from a foreign policy perspective, an administrative perspective, any other major policies that he would have introduced into Egypt in this period of time? Any anything that's perhaps uh, more on the secular side? Um, okay, there's, there's two things um, possibly coming under this heading. One is about his art, and I'll mention it here so we can pick it up again because mm -hmm. I might forget it. Mm -hmm. um, his foreign policy seems to be, as far as we can see, pretty much non-existent. He's still corresponding with um, his brother kings in, in other states in the Near East. He's still receiving tribute. But we're also starting to get letters from, from his brother kings who are saying, you're not sending me what you said you'd send me, why are you ignoring me, we're being attacked, can you help us? That sort of thing. So it seems that he's very much focused on his own God and his own religion. He's not that bothered about what's happening outside his own environment. During year 12, he throws a big, I guess, party, a big festival, and he summons representatives of all his... Um, fellow kings and vassals, anybody who owes him anything comes to a man and gives him a big pile of tribute. So he is still very much in touch with his empire, but we get the sense that he's just not interested in it. There's no evidence that he fights. Normally a king, when he came to the throne, would demonstrate his ability to defend the empire and, and his ability to be head of the, head of the army. 
by fighting, even if they had to provoke a little cam- a little fight with somebody, they would do this to prove to everyone they could do it. He, there's no sense that he does this at all. Nobody really wants to fight him, but he's not interested in maintaining what he's inherited. And I think it's quite telling that after he's gone, future kings will spend quite a lot of time trying to restore the Egyptian empire to what it had been previous to his reign. So that's one aspect. The other aspect that I think we have to mention, although it is very much bound up, I think, in his religion, is his appearance. Because when we look at him in art, he has a very, very strange appearance indeed, to our eyes anyway. And he must have seemed, I think, very strange to his people. Because normally the pharaoh of Egypt appears very much as a stereotypical, young, fit, male, capable of defending Egypt, capable of striking fear into the heart of enemies. But Akhenaten, at the beginning of his reign, completely changes this. So he has he adopts a very, very distinctive appearance. So he's got um, a long, thin face, a long, thin nose, almond-shaped eyes. Um, and this is all emphasised because he has a royal beard and he quite often has a tall crown. So this really elongates his face. He's got quite um, prominent lips, very defined cheekbones. And then looking at his body, he has almost a feminine body. He's got very wide hips, but he's got quite narrow shoulders and and quite spindly arms and quite wide thighs. So he looks completely different to any other pharaoh. It's still clear that he's a pharaoh. If you looked at it and you went really into Egyptian art, because he's wearing a crown and he's carrying a crook and flail and so on, we know that he's a pharaoh, but he does not look like every other pharaoh. And, of course, this has sparked a huge debate. Is this how he looks? Is this how he wants to represent his new religious persona? Or is it a combination of the two? Is it an exaggeration of how he looks used to um, emphasise his new religious beliefs that is almost you saw, a combination of male and female characteristics? Uh, but it's very interesting because we've never seen this deviation away from the standard art before. Um, a lot of people spent a lot of time trying to interpret it. And even more interestingly, the court around him also starts to change. They, they start to mirror him a bit. This is clearly the no, new official form of art that's going to be used for the future until, until Tutankhamun comes to the throne. As you know, a lot of effigies and busts of um, past uh, indiv- individuals, especially um, r- rulers, are uh, uh, larger um, in size than they would have been in person. When yeah. when you look at uh, uh, like what you had described there, for example, that 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 piece, um, how would you describe the the size? Was it was it uh, larger than than uh, what he probably would have been size wise, or or uh, do, does it seem like it was more proportional to? to a, uh, uh, a male in Egypt at that, at that given time? Well, we have all sorts, um, but we have a lot of very large, colossal-sized statues, um, which were designed to um, decorate, I suppose, enhance the temples, both in Thebes, where he built temples, and at Amarna. And they are, they are massive. And it's quite an important point that you're raising there, because we have to remember that these are designed to be seen by the sunlight and seen from below not seen as we quite often see them in museums. We, we're kind of almost looking them in the eye, if you know what I mean. Whereas to see them in the correct context, they would have looked subtly different to how we see them now. It's very interesting because some people see him as really ugly and have described him as being ugly and, and 
as, as bad art, basically. Whereas other people find him strangely alluring. They find him, there's a sort of liveliness to his face and an almost a sexuality in his features that we haven't seen in other kings before. So it's very much it is divisive. It, it, I quite often, if I'm talking about this to, well, in the old days when we could give public lectures, um, I would I would ask the audience what they thought and there would always be some who thought it was dreadful and some who thought it was actually attractive, different, but attractive. Um, it, it's, it's certainly impressive. It's, it's impressive that I think he had the courage to break away from the tradition and just go for it the way he wanted to be. And we have actually a, a memo, um, a little inscription left by one of his sculptors saying that the king taught him how to do this style of art. So it does seem that the king himself was telling his artists what to do. Um, it's fascinating, really. Yeah, it sounds like in a lot of ways he was uh, he was breaking away from tradition and doing things um, kind of his way. Yes, absolutely. And because of this need to worship the art and through the statues, Amarna City was full of images of the king and queen, far more than we've seen in anywhere else. And of course, because Amarna has survived where ancient Thebes and ancient Memphis haven't survived, these this art has survived too. So we don't just have colossal stone statues. We have smaller wooden statues and, and, and so on. There's, there's an awful lot of Akhenaten's art around. Okay. Uh, a few other things I want to cover before we work our way uh, to the closing closing uh, part of the conversation, which includes uh, touching again and uh, on the succession. Um, you had mentioned earlier brothers, uh, and I meant I think you mentioned in the mid- Middle East. I, I might have uh, heard heard the location inaccurately. Please, uh, you yeah. know, b- bring it up if needed in the response. But you did mention the word br- brothers. So was that more of a loose? Uh, uh, you did you use the term brothers in a loose yeah. loose it's way? The, sorry, okay, yes, it's no, that's fine. Um, yeah, yeah, I shouldn't have said that because it's it's very, it's very confusing. He basically has a network. Well, he, he owns um, Nubia to the south of Egypt, basically. It's it's completely colonised at this time, so it's kind of out of the discussions. It's under Egyptian control. But over the Near East, there are lots of little states and, and some quite big states as well. And he has a relationship with the rulers, the kings and the princes who rule all these states. Some of these are quite large. For example, Mitanni, um, he, he's he considered the kings of the larger places to be like brother kings. They refer to each other as brothers. They're not actually brothers, and I I should have made that clear. The others are more like vassals. They have to do what he says. But he's in constant um, communication with them, and they constantly send gifts of gold and luxury items, and, of course, women. Um, Women from from the news come into Egypt and, and presumably go into Akhenaten's harem. So they're constantly in touch with each other. And we have some of the letters preserved. We're very lucky. There was a diplomatic archive of letters, Atamana. It has actually included some letters that have been pre the Amarna age as well. So he's obviously taken his archives to Amarna and continued to build them. And these letters weren't written in hieroglyphs on papyrus. They were written in, in cuneiform wedges on, on clay tablets, which you stamp the wedge into the tablet and a whole series of these were found at Amarna. And originally, when they were found, no one knew what they were and no one thought they were of any value. And then someone suddenly realised that these are actually really important and translated them. And it gives us a whole diplomatic correspondence from this time, stretching from the end of the reign of Amenhotep III through Akhenaten's reign. So we can see what's happening, whereas with other kings, we don't have this type of archive and it's harder for us to see what's happening outside Egypt. 
But having said that, again, it's these letters that make it very clear that Akhenaten is not particularly interested in events outside Egypt. He's not really interested in events outside Amarna, as far as we can tell. He, he doesn't really refer to the rest of the country, unless there was a separate archive that we still don't have, of course. We don't know about that. Okay. Um, is it is it fair to presume, I'm presuming there is relative peace um, if, in, in, in Egypt um, from a military perspective during his reign? Can you speak about what's known about, about that? Yeah. Um, again, it, there's no evidence that there wasn't. There's no evidence that anybody at all ever rebelled against the imposition of the new religion, that no one, anyone said a word against him. But of course, had that happened, he wouldn't tell us. Because the Egyptian kings don't record bad things. They only record good things. And they, they, they will, in fact, twist bad things so that they look good when they record them on their inscriptions. So if Akhenaten did meet with opposition, he presumably squashed it, but didn't tell anybody, didn't record it anywhere. We have one hint in something that he wrote somewhere that makes us feel that he maybe wasn't happy with the way his god was being treated before the move to Amarna, that maybe the other priests weren't being quite good enough to the art, and that's why he moved away. But beyond that, we have no idea at all what happened, how people accepted it. We just have to take his word for it that everybody thought it was great. But I, I doubt that it was great for everybody. I think, again, traditionally... Early Egyptologists looked at this and they thought, oh, it's a garden city, it's lovely, they're all worshipping the sun, everyone's having a really good time. But I think if we look closer, this is a dictatorship. He's telling people what to do. His elites are having to do conspicuously what he wants them to do. And the people who are living in the workman's village are having quite rough lives. You know, there are children working on the building sites. People are not particularly well nourished. It's not the idyllic experience that um, early Egyptologists thought it was and that has somehow crept into the popular literature that life at Amarna would be fantastic. It would be fantastic if you were the king. It would indeed be fantastic. But for somebody living in the Amarna workman's village, it would be no better and possibly worse than it would have been living outside Amarna. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned that there could have been a person, so working our way into the succession part, you mentioned there uh, could have been someone that uh, had a short reign in between Akhenaten and Tutankhamun. Can you speak about what's known about that? Yeah, we can, we can see that Akhenaten dies in year 17. And round about the time he dies, there's somebody else coming to prominence. And it appears to be someone called Smenkar Ray. We have this name. And there's evidence to suggest that Smenkare is male, because it could be either male or female, but there's evidence to suggest that Menkare is male and is married to Akhenaten's eldest daughter. There's also evidence to suggest around about this time that a powerful woman is around and is helping out. Now, we know that Akhenaten's mother has, has almost certainly died, and we know that most of his daughters have certainly died. The question is, is who is this powerful woman? Is it... His, one of his daughters, is it Nefertiti? We just don't know. My reconstruction of what happens here is that his son, his elder son, Smenkare, takes the throne and marries the eldest daughter, Meritaten. But Smenkare's reign is 
I'm either almost entirely within Akhenaten's reign because they have a co-regency or just extends a little bit beyond his reign. So he rules with his father and then beyond him, but not for very long, not long enough to make a major impact on the archaeological record. He then dies, leaving his widowed queen, Mary Tartan, in a position of power. But the throne actually passes to his younger brother, Tutankhamun, who comes to the throne, married to the third Amarna princess and the only other surviving Amarna princess, Ankesempa Artan. To me, that's the best theory because it's the simplest. And I tend to always go to the simplest theory. But there are other people who believe that Nefertiti herself takes the throne at this time for a few years and then Tutankhamun takes the throne. I don't believe that because I don't think she would have any right or indeed need to take the throne. Um, she's not born royal as far as we know. She's not in the line of succession. If any female were to take the throne, I would say it would be Akhenaten's daughter who is born royal and who has been a queen of Egypt just like her mother. But I would be tempted to see it more that Mary Tartan, the Dowager Queen, and maybe Nefertiti with her are helping the young Tutankhamun at the beginning of his reign, because as we've previously said, he would have been somewhere between eight and 10 years old when he came to the throne. So he wouldn't have been able to rule entirely by himself. He would have needed guidance and he would have got this obviously from courtiers, male courtiers, but also from the surviving women in the royal family. And that, that's how I reconstruct it. But again, I have to say that if you read about this and a lot of people have put a lot of thought and a lot of work into it, and there are a lot of very valid theories out there I think no two Egyptologists basically interpret this period in exactly the same way. And it's only a gap of maximum two years, and then we're very firm that Tutankhamun is on the throne. And from that point onwards, the succession is obvious to us. We know what happens after Tutankhamun. It's just this little tiny gap at the end of Akhenaten's reign. It, uh, it's interesting, though, and it keeps scholars like you uh, busy on this, on, this, on this topic over the years. Again, it's absolutely fascinating um, and to me, just, just trying to work out what happened. I know that in the bigger scheme of things, it really doesn't matter. It's two years out of 3,000 years of dynastic history. There's no suggestion that this king or, or female king ruled anywhere other than Amarna. It's not an important reign, but still I find it absolutely fascinating. I would like to know how Tutankhamun got on that throne. I'd like to know what happened at the end of Akhenaten. I'd like to know what happened to Nefertiti and to the eldest princess, Mary Tartan. Um, and one day, touch wood, one day we'll have the evidence to really, really conclusively piece it together. But in the meantime, it's just a fantastic mystery. And uh, if there's enough, if there's enough evidence or material with with a scholar, a two year reign is enough time to to be an episode on the Ithaca Bound podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so uh, wrapping up, um, Joyce, uh, did Arden as a traditional deity ever become popular again in uh, in Egypt? So that's one one question to close. And the other other one was... uh, is uh, wh- why do you think Tutankhamun did a 180 degree um, uh, shift in in uh, worship beliefs um, from um, potentially his 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 father if 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 he was the son of Akhenaten? Okay, and um, the first one, um, the artist is never banned. He's just completely demoted, and he just goes back to where he was before. I'm saying he, the artist is actually genderless. But I, I suppose I should say it, really, or they. 
Um, so he just goes back to to where 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 he she it whichever was before, um, mm-hmm. no more prominent than had been before. Why Tutankhamun changed it around? It's interesting because having been born during his father's reign, Tutankhamun himself would have had no experience of anything other than the art and as a, as a god and art and religion. So clearly someone has guided him there. But I think it must be becoming clear that this is unsustainable. Uh, people aren't happy. They want to go back to the old ways. Because uh, the temples are not just... Um, they're not just places to worship. They're, they're massive economic organisations. They control land and stuff. You really need the priesthood to be flourishing for Egypt to flourish. You want the people to be happy. The courtiers presumably would like to have their afterlife back. Or maybe it was just recognised that actually people were pretending and they'd never really adapted to the new god in the first place. People certainly didn't want to be worshipping in front of images of Akhenaten anymore when he'd gone and... It seemed unlikely that Tutankhamun as an eight-year-old would be able to replace him in that way, I think. So for a whole host of reasons, Tutankhamun makes this a major feature of his reign. Because I started off by discussing Mart and the, the importance of maintaining the status quo, proving that you're one with the gods. He makes it into a big thing that he, Tutankhamun, is able to restore Mart to Egypt. He's able to bring everything back to how he should be. And that the gods who had been turning their back on the land are now really happy with Egypt because he, Tutankhamun, has done this, and so he is favoured by the gods, and Egypt is flourishing once more. It's always a pleasure uh, speaking with you, Joyce. Thanks for coming on the show again. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So again, everybody, the uh, couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Tildesley uh, authored, Nefertiti, Egypt's Sun Queen, and Nefertiti's Face, The Creation of an Icon, And as I mentioned in the intro too, Dr. Tildesley was on the show in an episode that was published on May 17th, 2021 on on Nefertiti, uh, who was a wife of Akhenaten. And that was entitled Queen Nefertiti of Egypt with uh, Dr. Joyce Tildesley. I'll drop links to the episode and the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Joyce and everybody listening, as always. Wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.